Welcome to Role Playing History, the podcast where we explore the history of role playing games. I'm Wayne Davis, and I'll be your guide for today's tour. Episode 40 Warhammer Fantasy Role Playing Game. Okay, before we launch into this week's tour, I wanted to take a minute to shout out everybody who checked out last week's episode on inclusion in role playing games. I have to admit that I was uh, I was nervous as hell about doing that episode. Not only because it's something way different than what we usually do, but because I just kept feeling like I, I wasn't getting it right. But the response has been exceptionally positive, and by exceptionally positive, I mean we've done ten times the usual number of listeners over the past seven days, and that is all because of you. Your shout-outs on Twitter have been tremendous, the number of new follows we've picked up are incredible, and I feel both honored and humbled about the response we got from last week's episode. And, due to all the responses I've gotten over the past week, I can safely say we're going to do another one of those episodes in the late spring or the early summer, so stay tuned for that. Now, back in the present, let's get into today's subject. Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay was created by Richard Hallowell, Rick Priestley, Graham Davis, Jim Bambra, and Phil Gallagher, and was released by Games Workshop in 1986. According to all reports, the original intent for the game was to be an adjunct game for the Warhammer Fantasy Battle Game, which, as we've discussed previously, is a miniature game played by tens of thousands of players around the world. Now, this theory has been supported by several writers over the years who point to several Games Workshop publications, including the Realm of Chaos titles, that included material for both Warhammer Fantasy role-playing and Warhammer Fantasy battle game. Some of those sources also note that titles would add Warhammer 40k to the mix as well and provide conversion rules from one system to the other in the rulebooks. Now, before we continue, let's address how a dual game system like this would work. Basically, the adventure, or rules, depending on how you want to look at it, are written for one game system. For the sake of argument, let's say the adventure was written as a scenario for the Warhammer Fantasy Battle Game. That requires a quick moment to remind you that the Warhammer Fantasy Battle Game consisted of at least two players, and maybe more, with their armies of miniatures moving around the board strategically and attacking their opponents. So, with that out there, so, with that out there, the scenario would lay out where the combat was taking place, who the involved parties are, and why they're fighting. To be honest, a lot of this detail would be a paragraph or two, because unless you're recreating a historical battle in miniature, a lot of miniature wargamers don't care about the why of a battle, just the where and the who. All references to movement would be based on the fact that the miniatures take up one-inch squares each, and a six-sided die is used to determine attacks and damage. Of course, the object of a miniatures game is to be the last army standing, and players would play accordingly. Now, how would you adapt that type of language into a role-playing game? First thing you'd want to do is provide flavor and substance into the where of the situation. This would provide the players with a much better sense of where the action is taking place, as well as provide them with hooks for actually wanting to be there. The who part of this is an RPG standard. Give us a big bad evil guy or a big bad evil group and we could stoke the fires and send the group on its way. 
The biggest change of all, however, is modifying the game from one that relies on moving miniatures around the playing surface into one that relies on characters making decisions that allow them to take actions to move the story forward. So, in other words, there's a whole lot of opportunity to foul up the works, as it were. And for the record, most of these dual system games were written the reverse of how I just presented it. They set up the role-playing game and then simplified things for the miniatures game. Maybe I just should have done it that way, but I did what I did, and I'm not apologizing. The real reason for creating the adventures the way Game Workshop did was to try to boost sales of the new game, as well as boost sales for the miniatures game. Unfortunately for them, it didn't do either one. Games Workshop became quickly aware that the miniatures game was going to be their big seller. The role-playing game didn't really lend itself to selling a whole lot of minis. But they'd also spent a lot of time and effort in creating a role-playing game based on their system. You don't want to just take that and, and chuck it out. So what they did was they turned over publication of Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing to Flame Productions which was a division of Games Workshop that specifically focused on role-playing games. And this transition took place in 1989. To their credit, Flame worked hard to rehabilitate the product and turn the line into something that could be a moneymaker for the company. Shortly after the transfer, Flame published a new series of adventures for the system. This was the Doomstones campaign, which a freelance writer had adapted from a set of AD&D modules. On top of that, Flame released what they'd anticipated would be a monthly, at best, or quarterly, at worst, publication called Warhammer Companion. However, in 1992, Flame was extinguished. They ceased operations, and the fan community was the only thing keeping Warhammer fantasy role-playing alive, as they would publish their own materials and share between themselves. Insofar as official materials, it would be quite a while before new stuff would come out. In English, anyway. You see, a couple of years later, Nexus Editrice, which was one of the main publishers of role-playing games in Italy, requested a license from Game Workshop to publish Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing in Italian. The license was granted, and Nexus performed a full translation of the original book, cleaning up some of the errors, and adding new artwork from artists such as Paolo Parente. The Italian version of Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing released in the spring of 1994 and won the Best of Show prize at the Lucha Game Show, which was the main game fair in Italy. The Italian translation of the game was a huge success, and Nexus took advantage of this, reprinting the game several times, both in hardcover and in paperback. They also translated the campaign Enemy Within and released it to good sales. On top of that, Italian gamers got the Warhammer Companion, which was a collection of 28 issues of the original Companion from Flame. And Nexus wasn't done. They also released an Encyclopedia Albonica that detailed the world of Warhammer, then topped it off with a Warhammer Adventures board game, which was a Nexus original product. The successes Nexus experienced drove publishers in other countries to request licenses. Soon, Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing was available in a number of other languages, including German and Czech. It should be noted that all of the other translations utilized Nexus's layout and artwork, so they were essentially translations of the Italian version rather than the English version. 
Now, in 1995, British publishers decided they wanted to get back in on the action, but oddly enough, it wasn't Games Workshop. British publisher Hogshead Publishing requested and received a license to publish both new and reprinted Warhammer Fantasy role-playing materials. Hogshead wasted no time publishing their own revised edition of the book, and it appears from reports that theirs was based on Nexus's translation, so we've gone from English to Italian and back to English again. From there, Hogshead reprinted the Enemy Within campaign, then began publishing new supplements, such as the Realms of Sorcery Magic supplement. However, unlike Nexus and the other publishers who'd gotten licenses before, Hogshead had some restrictions that were placed on their license. Under the agreement they reached with Games Workshop, Games Workshop had a pretty extensive editorial control over the products Hogshead produced, with the reasoning being that Games Workshop didn't want anything coming out that could contradict the tone that the original game had laid out. In other words, Hogshead could continue to produce materials as a part of first edition, but insofar as creating what you and I would call a second edition, that was a no-go under this license. In 2002, James Wallace, the owner of Hogshead Publishing, decided to get out of the business and sold his company. At that same time, he gave his license for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying back to Games Workshop, and that brought this version of the game to a complete halt, as multiple Wargame Fantasy Roleplaying products that Hogshead had been developing were just dropped when the deal was concluded. There were many within the industry at that time that wondered if the game would continue. Oh, come on. We're only a little over five pages and about 1,500 words into the podcast. You, you seriously think we're done? Of course not. Black Industries, which was a brand new division of Games Workshop's Black Library Publishing Group, took the reacquired license for Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying and got to work, announcing they would be producing a second edition of the game. Chris Promise was tasked with overseeing the changes to the system, and there were a lot of changes made. It should be noted that the basic system of the game remained the same, and we'll discuss that further in a little while. What changed were some of the big features, like the magic system. The creative team also took the opportunity to bring Warhammer Fantasy role-playing up to date and in line with what had been going on with the Warhammer Fantasy battle game, as it had gone through a number of setting changes over the years. The creative team decided to start the new edition after the Warhammer Fantasy Battle Games 2004 Storm of Chaos campaign, and they updated the history of the setting to reflect this. By March of 2005, the new version of the game was ready and released to the public. And Black Industries decided to keep striking while the iron was hot. They released a number of new supplements and source books, including monster, equipment, and setting supplements, a number of standalone adventures, and an epic campaign, The Paths of the Damned. For the next three years, the system chugged along, developing a loyal fan base that snatched up new material as quickly as it could be developed. But much as it had been for the entirety of its life to that point, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying once again lost its publisher, as Black Industries announced in January of 2008 that they were getting out of the role-playing game market. The final product under the Black Industries umbrella was the Thousand Thrones campaign. But again, Warhammer Fantasy role-playing wouldn't be without a home for very long. 
Later in 2008, Fantasy Flight Games picked up the exclusive rights to publish board games, card games, and more importantly for our show, role-playing games based on Games Workshop properties. That meant that, once again, Warhammer Fantasy Role-Playing had a home. Fantasy Flight took quick advantage of their license and released the Career Compendium and Shades of Empire for the second edition of the game. But Fantasy Flight had bigger ideas, and announced on August 12, 2009 that they'd developed a third edition of the game, and they released it immediately. Jay Little, Daniel Lovett-Clark, Michael Hurley, and Tim Uren get credit for developing this edition of the game, and it made changes that, in the minds of a lot of gamers, made it different from the first two editions of the game. Fantasy Flight wasn't concerned, though, and they even doubled down on their changes by only releasing this new version of the game in a box. The box had four rulebooks, over 300 cards and counters, and three sets of 12 custom dice. For the entire first year of 3rd edition's existence, this was the only way you could purchase the game. However, by late in 2010, Fantasy Flight realized they were leaving money on the table and decided to release the rulebooks separately. At that time, they also made PDFs of the books available for sale. Over the next several years, Fantasy Flight would continue to produce new materials for their edition of the game, but on August 12, 2014, exactly five years after their surprise drop of the new edition, Fantasy Flight announced that the third edition product line for the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing was finished, and that no new materials would be produced. Fantasy Flight would continue to print and release the materials they'd already produced for the line, however, and this continued for a couple of more years. In September of 2016, Fantasy Flight and Games Workshop released the notice that their licensing agreement was ending, and at the end of February of 2017, all Games Workshop-themed Fantasy Flight products were discontinued. So yet again, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying was without a home. This all lasted for a couple of months, as on May 24, 2017, Games Workshop and Cubicle 7 announced there would be a fourth edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplaying. Cubicle 7 decided to go back to what had made the game popular in the first place, and reported that the inspiration for 4th edition would come from the first two editions of the game. Dominic McDowell and Andy Law are the credit developers for this edition of the game, and it was released in digital form in August of 2018 and in physical, or print, form in November of 2018. This is the edition of the game you'll find on the shelf at your friendly local neighborhood game shop, and it's the version of the game my group has just started playing. Okay, so with the publishing history of the game covered, let's take a moment to look at the setting of the game. The primary setting of the Warhammer fantasy role-playing game is what's called the Empire, which is loosely based on the Holy Roman Empire. It contains a number of baronies, counties, and dukedoms, which are themselves based on the types of divisions one would have seen in Europe during the time of the Holy Roman Empire, and quite frankly earlier, if we're being honest. Now, there are regions that border the empire, Bretonia, Estalia, Talea, and Araby. These are the games versions of France, Spain, Italy, and Persia, with an Arabic caliphate flavor added in. Now, it also needs to be noted that while the physical setting of the game has roots in the real world, the fact that elves, dwarves, goblins, and other fantastic beings exist set it firmly in the fantasy realm. 
We do have to be honest, though. While most fantasy games find themselves in a medieval-type setting, at least from a technological standpoint, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is a little bit more advanced. Think early Renaissance. Firearms are available, though as several writers have noted, they're expensive and they're unreliable. Plus, there's an emerging middle class, and that didn't start in the real world until about the early Renaissance period. Okay, so we've done history. We've done setting. And let's get into the game systems themselves. Now, one thing I want to note about Warhammer Fantasy role-playing at the very top is this. Combat should be a last resort. Characters don't typically have a lot of armor, hits hurt, and death is a distinct possibility. Plus, unlike most other games of this type, healing is not easy. Much like in the real world of the time, you got to dress a wound, rest, and pray that it heals. I mean, there, there are other possibilities, but healing isn't as easy as taking a long rest or quaffing a potion. Losing health in this game is a very dangerous thing to have happen. One thing that has been pretty much a constant over the various editions of the game is the concept of careers. Now, this would be similar to a character's class in other games, but I would argue it's also very different in a lot of ways, especially in how the character can advance within their career. Advancing through the various levels of your career requires the character to improve their skills and attributes using gained experience to do so. What this represents is your character learning and growing in their chosen fields, such as a riverman or a guard, and learning the skills they would need to become better at what they do. It's also noted that the career is basically what the character did before becoming an adventurer, and in later editions, it's assumed it's what the character does between adventures. Now, let's look at the individual editions. First edition tried to keep the numbers utilized for ability scores as similar to the miniatures game as possible, though they did make the concession of making the skills on a scale of 1 to 100, because that allows for more detail than a standard 1 to 10 miniature scale. In fact, both games utilize the same characteristics. Movement, weapon skill, ballistic skill, strength, toughness, wounds, initiative, attacks, dexterity, leadership, intelligence, cool, willpower, and fellowship. Wounds, by the way, is Warhammer's term for hit points, though there are some major differences between Warhammer and, say, D&D. Second edition codified the 1 to 100 scale and separated characteristics into main and secondary. They also adjusted the magic system to focus on individuals rather than groups of battlefield units, which was how it had been done from the miniatures game. It was a holdover. They also replaced the magic point system from first edition with what they called manifestations of chaos, which is how magic users got their magic. There were several more changes made between 1st and 2nd edition, but one more that I wanted to cover here was the fact that 2nd edition switched over to a consistent set of dice by removing the d6 from damage rolls. Now you'd add a d10 to attack damage instead. That allowed d10s and percentile dice exclusively to be used in the game. But for 3rd edition, Fantasy Flight essentially decided to take this entire game structure and drop it on its ass. First off, they brought in the idea of a designated dice pool to determine rolls. And remember a few paragraphs back when I mentioned the 3rd edition box having its own dice? Yeah, they were specifically for this, because the rules had you use certain dice as part of your pool, and certain results on certain dice meant different things, depending... Look, once you got the hang of it, it made sense. But when I was reading it for research for the show, it just gave me a headache. So, next... 
Third edition also reduced characteristics to six total, paired off into three pairs. Strength and intelligence, toughness and willpower, agility and friendship. Everything else became a skill. Now, referring back to that box set I described a bit ago, it also came with tokens and cards. The intent behind those was that the tokens represented certain status conditions, such as fatigue or stress that a character might have, while the cards described actions and talents for the characters. It's handy, but something most other systems would sell as an optional supplement. And while there were a number of other detail changes to 3rd edition, there's one more I really want to focus on for this podcast, the party sheet. The party sheet was 3rd edition's way of focusing on party cohesion, and it allowed for characters to share an ability or a power that one character had so that anyone in the party could benefit from it. The party sheet also had a specific bonus ability and negative effects, so it sort of built in disadvantages to the advantages that it would bring. Needless to say, 4th edition went back to the basics and returned to the style of game it had been for the first two editions. Roles were again percentile die-based. All of the original characteristics were characteristics again, and the party sheet was eliminated. However, 4th edition brought a few advances to the system that many gamers have found to be positive. First, characters can now advance characteristics and skills independent of their careers, and this allows them to more easily change careers as the player dials in the type of character they're playing. Usage of skills was expanded with the concept of advantage, which allows for cumulative bonuses based on continued successes. The magic system reverted to the second edition style, but was integrated into the overall task resolution system. Finally, 4th edition was the first edition of the game to really offer guidelines on what characters could do with their downtime. Downtime is what happens between adventures. Prior to this, it was just assumed the characters did whatever, and the game moved on to the next adventure. Now, GMs are encouraged to allow the downtime to play out, as it can do as much to help characters in some ways as the adventures themselves. For the record, and I think I've said this once or twice, but the fourth edition of this game is the one my group just started, and my buddy Jim is the GM for this one. Now, we've only played the one game, and I'll give a much more detailed breakdown of how the system works in a YouTube exclusive once the campaign either ends or takes a break, but I did want to point out a few things we've noticed after one session. If you've only ever played D&D or Pathfinder, the concept of a percentile-based system might seem intimidating, but the truth is, everybody got it pretty quick. Low rolls are good, and the lower the roll, the better you can do. We also found out that the system slants itself towards avoiding combat whenever possible. Since healing isn't an easy process, we found ourselves in our very first encounter doing everything we could to avoid it. Ultimately, we couldn't, but our rolls were good and we survived the combat with minimal damage. Jim also pointed out, and, and I agree, that the way the book for 4th edition is written is a bit different than for other systems. Jim said himself it feels like it was written by gamers instead of promotional folks, and quite frankly, that's not a negative. What it meant to him, and what it means to me, if I'm being honest, is that you frequently find yourself flipping back and forth between sections to get all of the information you need to answer questions about what skills do and how you resolve certain checks, but the information is complete. So there's not a whole lot of guesswork needed to figure out resolution. You just need patience and the ability to quickly scan pages to find out what you need. Overall, after one game session, I'd have to say I'm, I'm liking the game. Now, that view might change after tomorrow night, and we're just going to have to wait and see. Now, I'd normally pull reviews for each edition of this game, but I'm not going to do that this week. 
Sure, the first two editions of the game were well-reviewed. Sure, somebody who decided to rip them for the typos in the second edition. Eh, that happens. But instead of doing a ton of review recaps, I'm just going to give you this one. In a 1996 reader poll from Arcane Magazine to determine the 50 most popular role-playing games of all time, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay came in at number four. Paul Pettengale, the editor of Arcane at the time, said this, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay is an extremely atmospheric game to play in. He then compared it to D&D meets Call of Cthulhu, saying that, if you've played these other two games, you can probably imagine what a superb mix that can be. Insofar as awards, there are three of note. At the 2005 Any Awards, the second edition core rulebook won gold for best production values and best game. The second edition book, Old World Bestiary, won gold for best adversary monster product. That was also 2005 Any's. And at the 2019 Ennies, the 4th edition core book won gold for best writing. So, if you want to play a medieval style of role-playing game and want at least a bit of real flavor, you certainly can't go wrong with Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. The fact that it's survived 36 years and 4 editions tells me that its popularity is everlasting, and it wouldn't surprise me if I'm doing a show in a couple more years about the 5th edition. You can pick up copies of 4th Edition at your friendly local neighborhood game store, which is where I always recommend you get your game gear. Or if you don't have one of those, you can get it wherever you get your game books. And with that, we come to the end of today's tour. Next week, we're going to examine the life and career of somebody I talk a lot about on this show, but I've never done a deep dive on. That would be one Mr. Jolly Blackburn. While we're at it, we'll look at the company he's most associated with these days, Kenzerco. So, last week, I mentioned a product that was getting a Kickstarter cranked up for it this week, and I want to give him another shout-out. The game, for those of you who may have missed the episode, is called Freelancer's Guide. It's a deck-based system, but don't let that scare you off. The idea is that the game is a role-playing game with a deck base, which... To me, seems like an interesting concept in and of itself. The world is controlled by megacores, kind of like in Shadowrun, and your group will be navigating the system or breaking the system to make your living and survive. But go to Games, who are the publishers of the system, promise a game with an Ocean's Eleven meets Now You See Me feel with a mix of Cowboy Bebop and Firefly mixed in. And yeah, that sounds like some big friggin' shoes to fill, but I gotta tell ya... What I've seen so far looks cool, and I, I think they're going to pull this off. So the Kickstarter campaign just started on the 22nd, and they're looking to raise $7,500 U.S. to get the project launched. As I'm recording this show, they're just shy of $1,000 with 28 days left to go in the campaign. 20 bucks will get you the game in PDF form, while 30 bucks will get you a physical card deck along with the rest of the PDF materials. Of course, they have more levels with more stuff. I'm just bringing you in at the ground floor. For my money, it was well worth it. I guess that's kind of my way of admitting I am a backer of this project. Anyway, I love to see new games get a chance to hit the market. So if you're interested, check them out on Kickstarter. And even if the game itself doesn't interest you, you can just pledge a dollar to help them out towards their publishing goal. Hell, I waste more than that on snack food on a daily basis. So there you have it. 
Also last week, I mentioned something about a project I'm considering doing in the near future, and I thought I'd expand on it a little bit here. I mean, hell, I'm plugging everybody else. I should plug me. Just saying. Okay, I realize you can go pretty much anywhere on the internet and see thousands of different opinions about character creation for pretty much any game you want. However, what I have yet to see is something that walks you through the process, step by step, of creating characters for different games. Also, if someone were to take that and combine it with a basic walkthrough of how to set up the first session or two of a new game for that system, I would think folks might find that useful. So my thought is this. A show, either a podcast or YouTube, where I take a game and walk you through all of the steps of character creation for various races and classes, as well as how to set up the first session or two of the game itself. Now, for me, a podcast would be the easier show to produce, but I also know that many folks are visual learners, so a YouTube show might be the better option. However, before I go through the process of purchasing gear to make a YouTube show a possibility, and that would all be out of pocket because the podcast itself is it's making money, but, I mean, come on, we've, we've made $11 in 39, now 40 episodes? Yeah, not going to buy a whole lot of gear for $11. Anyway, before I go through all of this, I wanted to get the opinions of our listeners and those in the tabletop role-playing game community who might also be interested but may not typically be listeners to this show. All right, so this means you've got a couple of questions you need to answer. Number one, do you even think a show like that would have enough of an audience to make it worth doing? Number two, if I were to do it, should it be a podcast or a YouTube show? Number three, what games would you like to see me break down first? Okay, the ways to answer me are the same ways you get in contact with me for the show. Facebook, Role Playing History Podcast. Twitter, at Role Playing P. YouTube, the channel, Role Playing History Podcast. Blah, blah, blah. You know what to do when you get there. Email us, roleplayinghistorypodcast at gmail.com. And... I've been asked a couple of times over the past few weeks about that website I've talked about a few times. Truth is, I am nowhere near being a tech genius, so I'm not making any progress. But I guess if I intend to add another show to my plate, I better get on that. So we're going to have one when I get my shit together, which if, if I'm waiting to get my shit together, will be never, but we're working on it. Also, I know I said this earlier, but it bears repeating. Thank you for your continued support of the show. We've got a ton of material still in the pipeline, so as long as you will keep listening, I will keep cranking out shows. So, next week I finally talk in long form about one of my favorites, the one, the only, the man, the myth, the legend, Jolly Blackburn. And since I'm going to let Jolly know he's the focus of the show, I guess I better make it a good one, don't you think? Yeah. And we're also going to talk about Ken Zirko, and they are so much more than just nights at the dinner table. You're going to have to trust me on that. But that is all coming up next week. Till then, I'm Wayne Davis, and you're Role Playing History.